I'm an anthropologist and I have had the joy of visiting you before um, at Oxford. So it's good. I can kind of, I know how you, you sort of, your what your microcosm looks like. So that's, that's nice. And um, I've had the pleasure of interacting with Stanley for many years uh, through various different modalities. And so um, I'm always thrilled to come and chat with this group um, anytime. Uh, so I was told to talk for maybe about 45 minutes. Uh, and um, I'm going to be talking today about the uh, book we have that I wrote with Amber Wittich that just came out. So this is a book that's been out for just a few months now, and I haven't done a lot of um because it's this year, I haven't been doing a lot of talks about um, the work, but uh, um, hopefully it will be really relevant to a lot of the work that you're doing in the unit uh, because we work on weight, but we also work on other related aspects of human variation, human biology and health um, with this broader model of how global health and stigma fit together. Uh, and I think this is particularly relevant for people that, that work at the intersection of social sciences and medical or health sciences, like a lot of you do, because you're often um, talking to languages, talking to two different groups of people. Um, in our work, we definitely situate it right in the middle of those conversations. And it's not necessarily a place that a lot of anthropologists go, but it's, it's a place that we've found has been particularly productive for um, connecting the type of work we do to sort of uh, the real world in which we operate as anthropologists. To sort of start our story and set our stage about how we're thinking about the ways that global health and stigma are connected, you know, the, the most obvious place to start is talking about smoking. So sm the anti-smoking efforts in the 20th century were probably some of the most successful health behaviour ch change campaigns um, of the century and you went from a situation where smoking was everywhere um, in the advanced economies, the relatively advanced economies where you had film stars smoked, doctors smoked and promoted smoking for health. Uh, smoking was seen as both sexy and sophisticated and manly and womanly at the same time. It was brilliantly marketed to appeal to everybody as a behaviour. So when the um, medical findings came out that showed that smoking was not very good for your health and that was causing a lot of quite expensive problems on the back end, um, there was a lot of effort made to reduce smoking. And the one of the most successful aspects of that anti-smoking effort that was extremely successful for the most part um, was changing the ideas about what smokers, smoking was, but particularly changing the ideas of what smokers themselves as people were. So you went from um, a sense of smokers, sm smokers as positive to smokers as negative. So these are some of the types of advertising and health messaging that we used. You had... Um, you know, smoking now was portrayed as disgusting instead of sexy and glamorous. That was portrayed as demasculated rather than manly. And it was portrayed as dangerous rather than safe and healthy. And 
this approach was extremely successful and it showed um, I think a lot of public health practitioners that you could use you could leverage um, the idea that people that engage in certain health behaviors are morally wrong or morally bad as a means to to press behavior change because behavior change generally is quite hard and sustained behavior change is incredibly hard particularly when you're dealing with an addictive substance what you see is after the first world conference on smoking and the first surgeon general's report smoking rates went down in uh, all of the um, more advanced economies and it was a success in regards to the overall pattern of smoking now smoking remains and it tends to be in lower income groups so it's not like smoking was eradicated as a behavior um, and the demography of it as, as a health as a health relevant behavior has really changed but why is it that stigma is so good at shifting addictive hard to change behaviors and there's a number of different reasons that they're interconnected so and all um, I think very familiar to anthropologists so the first one is that humans actually have an evolved disgust response that can be triggered quite easily you can do it with um, smells you can do it with uh, visual cues I had a kid who was very sick the other night and threw up and then as soon as I smelt it I threw up it's it's a disgust response in the body and it's 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 innate and it's it's involuntary and that you know evolutionary anthropologists will tell you um and this is particularly in the work of the late and lovely Val Curtis that this probably had uh, a very clear public health benefit before we had public health systems it kind of told you who you might want and what you might want to avoid you know like and kept early humans quite safe because there's just some things they kept away from another aspect of why I think stigma is able to shift even tricky uh, health behaviors is that humans are a very a cooperative social species. We actually really want to fit and belong. It's part of how we are geared and we like to feel valued. And part of what stigma does is it labels people as having little or no value within a social context. And that's very, very painful for people. It's incredibly emotionally painful to be devalued as a human. And what the stigma process does when it takes a moral, uh, an idea around a behavior and attaches it to the qualities of the person is that it then teaches who you should be disgusted by. So you're no longer disgusted by the smoking, you're now disgusted by the smoker and you devalue, devalue the smoker. And the pain of that devaluation for the person who's being devalued can be sufficient to um, motivate them highly to change their behaviors. And this is because, you know, social norms are very powerful. Social judgment is awful. And social death, which is sort of the end point of stigma when you are completely devalued and moved apart from society, is excruciating. And for anthropologists that have worked in environments where they're around people that have been socially uh, gone through these type of processes, they know how devastating it is to, it, it undermines your entire sense of humanity. So it works. But... Um, I want to talk about why, uh, despite this, it should never, my, what, so the point of my talk, to get to it early, is that despite the fact that it works, it should never be used in public health interventions ever. And I'm going to outline why this argument uh, matters, I think it's, and, and, and why we make it.
Um, if you think about just even what's happening in the last month um, or the last six months or eight months, however long it's been, around mask wearing, these debates have come back up again. And I saw one of my very uh, anthropologist friends post on Facebook last night that there should be a triage of people receiving vaccines based on their attitudes towards science so that people that were anti-science should you know so there was sort of this recasting of this idea of who should be vaccinated based on this moral worth and I was like so we're seeing this play out again and again and again even in terms of COVID in ways that are kind of interesting which I'll get to at the very end of the talk but but first I want to sort of run through through the three parts of the argument and the argument is built around three different types of evidence so in the first one I'm going to talk about the discussed interventions that have been done um, in global health and why that is a very, and they've been extremely successful, but also why that can be a very dangerous strategy. Um, and this is around sanitation interventions. Um, second, I want to talk about the stuff that's probably most relevant to your group, which is around how global health itself can reduce new stigmas, both inadvertently and um, on purpose. And then I want to sort of go back into the stigma literature to the area where there's been the most work on stigma, which is around mental health, and look at why it's so hard to undo the damage once stigma is applied, why it's so hard to get it off, and what we know about how to get it off. Um, so that's kind of the structure of my talk. I just want to point out that actually, the I was reading this the other day, the place on the planet that appears to be, has not had any COVID cases yet is Kalaupapa, which um, is kind of ironic uh, because um, this is probably the most classic case of how global health can be complicit in creating and leveraging stigma for its own gain. So Kalaupapa was created um, as a, a, a leprosy colony, in fact, a leper colony. Um, in Hawaii at the time that the missionary and the, the missionaries and the sons of missionaries and the sons of American businessmen were um, uh, engaged in a very thorough and thoughtful effort to annex Hawaii to the US. And part of that required them to control um, local uh, and rightful endeavors to reinstate the Hawaiian monarchy. So there was a series of edicts that came out from the Public Health Board that was completely controlled by these um, immigrant upstarts to uh, place people that were deigned as lepers into isolated quarantine. And so Kalapapa became a place um, that not only that people with leprosy went, but that um, through a series of ways of talking about the apparent weakness of um, uh, Indigenous Hawaiian health um, was able to also use it as a tool for uh, working towards um, notions that the monarchy should not be reinstated and also dealing with um, um, adjutants and political activists and so on. So here you have a situation where um, public health endeavours um, were leveraged stigma in order to uh, shift certainly both um, the course of American and certainly Hawaiian history, not to the benefit of the Hawaiians. And this is the particular colony uh, on Molokai. It's now got the last few residents. They're dying out and they're bulldozing the houses as they do. So it's sort of a it, turning into a living memorial. Uh, it's going to be run by the Park Service. You can go visit 
um, if that's your sort of holiday, idea of holiday, which it was for me, we went down there a couple of years ago, it's really fascinating. And just to make the point that everyone in Kalapapa, they didn't send um, uh, Americans with leprosy to Kalapapa, they sent Hawaiians with leprosy to Kalapapa. Right, so um, just before I go any further, I just wanted to find what I mean by stigma. So some of you will have read Goffman's fantastic work, which is still really, really relevant. Um, and it gets cited all the time, uh, partly because there's not really since Goffman a, a good set of literature for anthropologists to draw on about stigma, and we're trying to work on that. I think it needs to be updated somewhat for reasons I'll get to right at the end. But what I mean by stigma is the moral labelling on the basis of an arbitrary tray, like a disease or a health behaviour, uh, that then um, creates a process in which that person is pushed down or out of society. And then there is a sequelae with that. So that that stigma is not just the process being pushed down and out, but also what comes after, which is the sort of um, experiences this person has as a result, the health consequences of that stigma rather than the disease and so on. So it's associated with discrimination, which is an active stigma, distress and worsening disease. So usually almost in most cases, stigma actually triggers worse disease as part of disease, it sort of accelerates disease endemics and so on. Um, just very quickly, when I talk about stigma, there's a lot of underlying different versions of stigma. Uh, just to give you this all, the, but I'm just going to talk about stigma because it's too complicated to talk about all these different ones at once. Um, you know, stigma comes in many forms. The most um, damaging to people is self-stigma. So uh, you can be stigmatized, but not but not believe the stigma about yourself, right? That can, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's like because discrimination is part of stigma, you can have some sort of in-group protection where you're around other people that also don't agree with the stigma and that gives you some sort of psychological protection. But when you internalise the stigma and you believe that you are a bad person because of the trait you have, that's when you get the worst effects of stigma on individuals from a health perspective. Okay, so just to um, talk about the first case study, this is Mary Douglas, well-known to many anthropologists, um, who first started talking about notions of pollution and what they meant to people. And I just have to put this um, picture up because the Royal Anthropological Society charged me like $95 to use it, so I feel like I have to now. That's a nice photo of her anyway. That's her in Lele in Africa, before she went home and wrote all her books as a housewife looking after small children, which probably that sounds familiar to people about now. So uh, when I talk about disgust, I'm really talking about that, that physical revulsion. Um, and then I'm going to be talking about hygiene norms, which are the social rules that dictate how people should uh, behave and kind of frame what we consider as disgusting. We, we really learn to disgust things. And what disgusts us is quite contextual as well. And so hygiene stigma then is the social costs that come if you don't meet hygiene norms when you are labelled as disgusting and people react to you as disgusting. So the case of open defecation is really interesting. So much of the world, well, some parts of the world still have very high rates of open defecation. And it's a, 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 in Asia and Africa, it's a major focus in many sort of the widespread uh, sanitation campaigns is um, <clears throat> dealing with open defecation. And the question is how, do, you know, there is not an infinite amount of money to build toilets and hand-washing stations. 
in in Africa and Asia, there's not enough money available anywhere to build a toilet and a hand washing station for every household that needs one. Um, and in the 90s, there was a huge amount of effort to do that until people figured out that this was not a good idea because it wasn't fiscally viable. And they started finding other ways to promote sanitation change that didn't involve hardware. And so were much, much cheaper, much, much cheaper. And they've really caught off. So caught on. So what's happened is that you have um, community-led total sanitation as one of the main strategies. It came out of Bangladesh. It's now used um, all over. And what it does is that it goes into a village with a trained facilitator. It teaches people that shit around, the, it's usually rural villages, shit out in the village is disgusting, but more important that people who shit out in the village are disgusting. So it connects moral worthiness to, to these new hygiene norms. Um, and you can see from the photos there that the type of image that they're using is that, you know, you have the slim model middle-class woman who is clean and following the norms. And then you have someone with sort of buck teeth, dark skin, overweight. So there's all these other moral sort of layering onto this as well, who, who, doesn't follow the norms. And so part of this is leveraging prestige of sanitation in people's imagination, and part of it is leveraging disgust with lack of sanitation. So this is these are these this is actually um, the materials here were part of the clinical trial testing the effectiveness of the method. Uh, these were the actual materials they used in the villages. So um, it works. If you do these community-led total sanitations, it's cheap, it's fast, and it does, um, people will do anything they can to build a toilet. They will take out loans. They will build it on the neighbor's land um, because what happens in, at the end of these interventions is that if you don't follow the rule, you get, um, your kids will be um, stigmatized in school, teased and bullied and so on. So there's a lot of reasons to follow up and follow through on the behavior change. But then you get the question about, is this a good or bad thing? So if you look at sort of Val Curtis's work and her team, they'll say that stigma is part of this adaptive behavioral immune system. So using it is a good thing because it's going to keep people healthy. But actually, if you go back to Mary Douglas um, and you look at her work, and really no one's followed up on this much, symbolic theories of pollution that are being leveraged here as well really had little to do with disease. They're all about social boundaries and policing social hierarchies. So then you've got to start thinking, or in fact, we started thinking, what does that really mean? If you're leveraging something that is all to do with policing social boundaries or hierarchies, what are some of the consequences of that? Um, if people are not changing their behavior because they're worried about getting sick, they're actually worried about being socially rejected. There's a basis for why the method works. So um, we did a study in four countries there with the little stars and we, they were countries with high and low um, sanitation levels, high and low infectious disease levels, um, good and not so good water delivery systems and so on. And we, we asked people in each of these places, Fiji, New Zealand, Guatemala and the US to outline for us uh, what they considered socially acceptable levels of cleanliness and a clean person and the sort of labels that they would attach to that. So this was sort of, um, an open-ended sort of questionnaire type of format of data collection. We do a lot of this comparative type of work. We really enjoy it um, for 
initial theorizing, it's really useful. So what we saw when, when we used some of Val Curtis's um, metrics, uh, rating scales that people had similar sort of disgust responses across the four sites, and they were varied within the population, as you would expect. So, you know, the sort of the disgust response looks like pretty normal curves, really. But then when we looked at how people convert the, that disgust into stigma, they were using different types of um, labels to talk about people that went unclean. But all those labels uh, associated with lack of um, cleanliness were really about other moral qualities attached on top. So it's disgust consistently converted into stigma, yes. So in all these places, not only are people saying that norm, there's norm violations or people are not sanitary, but they're also attaching these moral meanings to them that are a little bit different. Like in the US, it's often drug addict or homeless, you know, where, whereas in Fiji, it's um, someone who uses too much kava or someone that doesn't have proper care from their family. Um, in Guatemala, it's it's very low socially, you know, socially costly forms of um, employment and getting money. Uh, okay, so why is it a problem? Um, it, it's pro it's a problem because when you use these types of behaviour change um, tools, it seems to readily convert to stigma. So you can't just trigger disgust as behaviour change. What you're also doing is triggering new stigma. So you are saying not just that someone should do something, but if they don't do it, they are less of a person than someone else, right? And this is obviously really problematic because when they do these interventions, not everyone in a village or not all villages have the same capacity to respond and build a toilet. Um, so there's only one really good ethnographic study in the wake of these um, community-led total sanitation projects where they came in several years later to see what had happened. And it was disastrous for the lowest income families in the village because they had got they had taken out loans that they couldn't repay and it had bankrupted families, among other having to build a toilet that they couldn't afford to, to keep up with the Joneses. We also see consistently in our research that women are much more likely to be impacted by gendered expectations of hygiene because they are also, um, and we see this in our water insecurity work, they're, they're the ones that expect to keep the house clean and the children clean. And if the house and the children aren't clean, then the social costs accrue more to women than men. Like we've seen in the field quite a bit of, you know, if kids have to go to school without washing because the family doesn't have water, then that reflects on the mother um, in particular and her value uh, and her social roles. We also think that uh, poor hygiene stigma trigger stress, including worse mental health, higher blood pressure, and so on. We're just starting to collect that data. We're excited by some of the work that um, Caruso's group is doing on sanitation insecurity because that's kind of a way in to this. I got another study going on right now with this that's kind of like all our field research right now, um, not going as vigorously as it was, but I'm also doing work in Arizona looking at how people stigmatize tap water use versus other types of water use. So just to make clear that these are phenomena not limited to, to low-income developing countries. We also see some of these same patterns playing out in higher-income countries. And uh, Katie Meehan, who's at um, uh, KCL, has just come there as a geographer, has been doing work on plumbing poverty in the US. And you can see that Arizona, Arizona right here, I don't know if you can see my little pointer, but anyway, oh, Arizona, right there. Um, 
is kind of the US and here, drinking water vulnerability is where I am is kind of one of the hotspots. So that's one of the reasons we're working close to home. And also one of my main field sites here in Apache Junction is actually a municipal area that doesn't have water service and people have to haul their water. Okay, so part two. So that's kind of, you know, the first part with the sanitation is making the, the point that stigma accrues, not just health behavior, with health behaviour change. Okay. The next point I want to make is that, in fact, if the stigma implications of sanitation are inadvertent, there are other stigmas that global health is producing that um, are perhaps more purposeful and more systematically produced. Okay, so one set of research that we've been doing has been looking at um, reactions to, to, to different body sizes around the world. And we've been worked in a, a, a lot of different sites now, as you can see from the slide, in different ways. And we've been looking at different types of stigma. So some of these are explicit stigma, what people say, some of these are based on implicit attitude test is kind of um, what the ideas that people are used to most um, used to processing. And uh, what we found is that uh, anti-fat thinking and anti-fat attitudes are quite apparent all around the globe, probably everywhere except perhaps sub-Saharan Africa. What you see is that anti-fat attitudes are a globalizing or globalized phenomena at this point. There's not many places you can't, you'll go, and this has really happened in the last 10 years ago. So, you know, anthropologists working 10 years ago in some of these communities will go back once Facebook has come in and you see this, these quite rapid shifts and views around bodies that have been happening, um, certainly since I started working on this issue in the late 1980s. Um, massive changes in places like Samoa, where I was working and we just went back and worked recently, where people are adopting, have adopted and internalized quite different body. And um, we've also been, so one of the studies that I did with, with, with Jonathan Maupin, looking at kids in a small rural area in Guatemala, where even kids in that, in, in that community have started to associate very negative moral meanings attached to larger bodies, um, underweight bodies as well, is sort of, and you see that, you know, uh, they're attaching things like ugly, lazy, um, bad character to large bodies, even by the time they're eight to 12 years old in this rural village. And I think that's just a sort of, just, just a snapshot, but it, it tells you a lot about what's going on. And in another study, we were looking at um, nationally representative data in Guatemala, a very large sample of 12,000 women, uh, where they reported that weight-related teasing Exposure to weight-related teasing was as predictive of depression as severe food insecurity, exposure to violence during the civil war in Guatemala, and dealing with chronic health challenges, which was a really surprising finding. And the more ethnographic work they do, the less surprising it is. But at the time, this was quite, to us, we were like, really? The civil war and weight-related teasing are similarly damaging psychologically, but now we understand more about what's going on with how people, um, how it shifts identity and sense of meaning and purpose in the world and value in the world. It makes more sense to me. The last study that I just want to, that we've done um, in this space has been with in a very, very different environment. So the Mayo Clinic in, 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 it has a, is in Rochester, Arizona, in Minnesota, Arizona, and Florida, it has three hospitals. And we were working, so we have here what is considered one of the premier health institutions 
in the globe. It's one of the most valued brands globally is the Mayo Clinic. Um, and we did a three-year ethnographic study at the Mayo in Arizona in their bariatric clinic, um, working to understand how um, people experience that have very large bodies experience stigma change as the weight comes off. So uh, with bariatric surgery, you can lose like half of your excess body weight in a year. So it's very dramatic weight loss and people's um, outward appearance changes very dramatically. And they can be around people that knew them when they were larger, people that didn't know them as large. And um, so this ethnographic study was about tracking what happens before and after people go through this change and how it affects how they relate to others, how they see themselves. So self-stigma and uh, stigmatizing interpersonal interactions. And one might hope, I think as many of the patients did, that as the weight goes, so does the stigma. And it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than that, that once that stigma is felt, it's very hard to shift it. So and there's a number of reasons. Um, one is that uh, when people, once by the time people come for weight loss surgery, they've already been often in deeply felt stigma for many years. Another reason is that even the the surgery itself is often deigned by others as a not um, a morally worthy way of weight loss. You do not get the moral the moral rewards of weight loss from other people. So if you'd lost the weight by exercising, people would give you far more value and far more credit than if you do it surgically. Another reason is that uh, bariatric surgery changes the body in other ways. It creates, for example, a very different sort of set uh, from uh, leftover after weight loss is not covered. That that, uh, surgical correction is often not covered by uh, insurance. So people were often left with bodies that they were still ambivalent about despite having lost all the weight and what we saw is is like a lot of these and we also did a big survey with all the Mayo hospital systems with all the bariatric patients um, as well as the ethnographic studies so we had a survey that went out to um, all their bariatric patients of the previous seven years I think it was I want to understand anything about the Mayo brand is really interesting is that the survey the survey response on a postal survey for that was like through the roof it was um nearly 70%, which is which is incredible. It just tells you how much people there when they have been a patient there. So the real problem is that the history of that experience of fatness and um, the identity of fatness wasn't shared with the weight. People would still experience um, stigma after they was, had lost weight and it affected their health behavior negatively. So basically people um, would feel ashamed to exercise in public, for example. They very problematic relationships with food that were not just to do with the diet. And a lot of this was tied to feelings of stigma. I think you might've seen this before. I've been carrying this slide around for quite a while, but there's, you know, weight gain and obesity and stigma are tied through multiple different pathways, right? So stigma makes it very hard for people to lose weight. It helps people gain weight. Um, a lot of part of this is through um, sort of psych behavior change pathways part of it is through physiological stress pathways but there's a very um, increasingly apparent relationship but my point here in talking about stigma and global health and weight is that you're starting in the last see efforts towards anti-anti-obesity efforts that are using some of these same strategies from the smoking and from the, the sanitation 
um, campaigns and adopting them. And these are um, ads from different countries that are clearly equating negative moral traits in different ways. This, the first one is basically sort of a bad parenting um, moral. Putting it on parents is quite common that you are harming your child if they're overweight. Um, and blame and shame sort of notions kind of come through a lot of um, anti-obesity efforts. About three and a half years ago, we started doing a very detailed ethnographic study in four different four different sites. Um, Samoa, where I worked in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Paraguay, where Amber has been working for 20 years. Amber Wittage, uh, Sarah Trainer and I worked in Georgia, where I lived for eight years. Uh, Jessica Hardin is working in Samoa now. She's another cultural anthropologist. And then Cindy Sturt-Streetheran, who's been working in Osaka in Japan um, for 20 years. And we went out as a five-person team and we a pretty thorough and focused multi-sided ethnography, comparing how people were reacting to bodies and body weight and large bodies. And it's tied to sort of medical messaging and these four different sites. And some of the key findings of that were that, you know, in all these places, people were horribly worried about their bodies, including Japan, where very few people are that overweight. It was obsessive and continuous and complete worry that, uh, and particularly for women, because women were responsible for their husband's weight and the husbands were the ones that were more at risk of gaining weight and so on. And definitely tied in very clearly to health messaging and all the ways that people are dealing with this were costly. Um, psychologically in terms of time in terms of effort and so on and I will get to where you can read more about that study um, and I think the other thing to be really worried about um, in terms of weight and weight gain and stigma is that we're seeing um, that obesity as it slides down the poverty into poverty being you know higher prevalence in populations with less with less that the weight stigma is probably the effects of the weight stigma are going to just amplify. So it's really problematic. So the point is, is that global health can help reduce new stigma as it has done with weight. And, and in many ways, because of the connection between stigma and weight gain, anti-obesity efforts then are in the cycle of actually undoing a lot of their own efforts because they have stigma embedded in them. And with this, like, like all the other cases that we'll talk about except for one, uh, those in poverty and women are the ones that, that bear the brunt, uh, have the worst impacts from this. And importantly, in the case of weight, you know, clinicians are some of the most weight stigmatizing groups that there are, and the stigma's only been going up. So there's been studies with anti-obesity scientists and clinicians and so on, and they tend to, I mean, in general, tend to be very stigmatized towards weight. And bariatric Doctors have report, you know, said to me that they feel very stigmatized because of the work they do, because people feel they're working with um, patients that don't really deserve the care that other groups do. Uh, so they also don't, they also feel stigmatized, um, as, as many people have also described similarly for working with um, patients with mental illness. What's to be done about this? Is this something we can learn from mental health, which is the area where there has been the most consistent effort over many decades to destigmatize. So people have long known that mental health stigma prevents mental health recovery. It stops people um, seeking care. It undermines the, the treatment compliance. 
it um, makes it an unattractive profession for, for nurses to work in and so on. So we know well that stigma undoes efforts to um, improve mental health and it has effects at multiple, multiple levels. So, you know, stigma, sort of public stigma towards mental health means there's less investment in cures. People are much more enthusiastic about funding um, discoveries around breast cancer now that that's destigmatized relatively than they are in mental health, for example, there's less uh, regulatory, you know, sort of um, helpful legislation. People are more likely to master illness. They experience more discrimination, which doesn't help either. Um, they tend to have low self, lower self-efficacy and so on. So mental health experts know stigma is really bad. And they've come up with a number of strategies over the years. You know, you can call the disease something else. This was the schizophrenia approach, uh, bipolar disorder instead of manic depression and so on. And uh, that really doesn't work. It becomes attached to the new label. You can attempt to re-educate people, but norms are quite hard to shift unless people have some sort of internal, external motivation to do so. So that can be very tricky. And one of the other problems with re-education is that the way that Day. But the way that a lot of norms work is that someone's benefiting often from their applications is sort of the structural violence argument. So it can be hard to re-educate people that don't want to be re-educated. Uh, reframing, you can say it's okay to be, you know, so this is kind of the body positivity approach is reframing the problem as not the people's problem. It, You know, with weight, it's not really working. For in, One of the key um, indicators of that is that weight activists, when they lose weight, often distance themselves from the weight activist community. That's probably one of the most telling phenomena of why this is tricky with weight in particular. Probably one of the approaches that works best is the sort of advocacy with activism um, approach. So when very prominent people um, out themselves with a disorder or a disease, someone that other people look up to, if, if the status of that person transcends the negative status of the disease label, it can elevate, it can destigmatize the disease. And we've seen that with um, a lot of different celebrities, uh, you know, with um, Princess Diana with bulimia, for example, Elton John with bulimia has kind of destigmatized that in a helpful way for people that are seeking treatment is one example. And one of the most powerful combinations seems to be when you have sort of celebrity voice, people with great social power giving it a voice, but then you have very strong activist communities is probably one of the best sort of sets of history we see for people managing to deal with, to shift stigmatizing ideas. But it doesn't work all the time and it requires a very specific set of conditions to work. And you can also expose people. You know, one of the strategies that's used is exposing people to people without the stigma to people with the stigma and hoping that that sort of personal connection, it's, it, it's, it's not a consistent game changer, that one. Okay, so basically what all this effort of mental health has proven is that um, stigma is almost impossible to remove once it's on. It becomes ingrained in how we think. Um, once you label a person, it's hard to remove the label. And you know, for all the reasons that we've kind of touched on, you know, that norm change without triggering disgust is very hard, that humans are all about prestige. Often they worry more about prestige than they do about disease. That stigma 
as the Kalau Papa Hawaiian case shows, is really often embedded in the structures of power and it's, it's leveraged as a form of power. And when you have stigma power, it's very hard for any individual to fight against that. Like with all forms, you know, it's a manifestation of structural violence. And one of the biggest problems with stigma is that a lot of people that experience it self-stigmatize and they believe it and you can't something that you agree with. So that's, um, and the other thing, just for those that love Goffman, <clears throat> I got a quote on the bottom from someone that knew him. He destroyed, he, he requested that all his notes be destroyed when he died. He didn't want to be. And so his entire set of notes for all his work was destroyed by his family. So what happened, because he was such a big figure in stigma research and in sociology, is that there was a big effort um, in the 80s to go and interview everyone that knew him. And there's an archive now of interviews with everyone that worked with Goffman in some capacity and their memories of him. And he was very complicated character. And you see one of the quotes there <laughs> makes it clear that he was someone that talked the talk but didn't walk the walk always. Um, and in his personal interactions, he was extremely stigmatizing. And I think that that is suggestive of why stigma is so problematic is that you can intellectualize it all you want, but humans are very human and they react in a very human way to things that are not like them or scary or disgusting. And um, that's another reason that stigma is very difficult to deal with. So, you know, in our book, we have a set of recommendations for anyone who works with vulnerable populations in particular about how to sort of triage um, health, any sort of health activity to be sure that you are destigmatizing to the greatest extent possible. We also have an online training through the Western Pacific Health Alliance that you can do for free, which takes about two hours that sort of teaches you some of these tools for assessing the stigma impacts of your own health research or health work. So that's one of the, but in essence, there was a book review came out in the last couple of days of our book that basically said that, that they're not, <laughs> they were so convinced by the argument that they didn't believe that there was much to do at the end, but I am a bit more optimistic. So one final sort of point, just to bring this right up to date, is that there's a very interesting thing that's been happening. So in um, with COVID is that in um, April, we wrote a commentary about what to expect with stigma in COVID in which we took what we knew from all these cases and we predicted a certain set of outcomes that, you know, stigma would intensify as the disease became more associated with, with vulnerable or marginalized groups, which it has an actuality if you look at the epidemiological data, but not in terms of the media, the media presentation, the public presentation of the disease. So what you see with the public presentation of COVID is this really extraordinary thing where it's gone up the social ladder. It's people were, who are wealthy. So, you know, one of the super spreader centers is the White House and you have, you know, the first family infected and so on. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic around this where, um, Early in the disease cycle, the President Trump was using stigma for, for clear political gain. He was talking about the Chinese virus and it was, it was specifically leveraging stigma um, and prejudice in order to make various forms of political gain, purposefully so. And uh, yet then we had this sort of shift where then once... The disease is in the White House. You can't really, that rhetoric sort of shifts quite a lot. And then what becomes, the what becomes I think, the sort of the important, um, so the dialogue here is what happens when disease goes up, climbs the social ladder. 
the stigma kind of disappears of the disease in some ways. So this probably has reduced the stigma around getting the disease. But one of the things that's most concerning about this is the sort of the promotion of the idea that the, that the disease is light and the recovery is easy. And I expect what we'll see is that the difficult recovery is what's going to be um, become more stigmatized. So people who don't get over the, the disease that had long, and we're starting to see some signs of that is that that lack of recovery might be what becomes um, problematized for people and is not treated with as much sympathy and care as it otherwise would be if stigma was, you know, if, if stigma wasn't around disease in the way that it is. So if you're interested in this whole argument, you can read our new book, Lazy, Crazy and Disgusting. It's cheap. Um, and I think there's a discount code there to make it even cheaper. And also we have some of the other studies. We have books coming out next year. Uh, we have Fat and Full Cultures, which is a riff on Bridget Jordan's Birth and Full Cultures, this study of weight in four countries that's sort of a multi-collaboratively um, uh, authored um, ethnographic study and then we also the bariatric surgery study is coming out next year as well as a book and there's bits and pieces of these and that is uh that